It is Monday, July the 26th. How are you doing this afternoon? Thanks for joining me. Welcome to the first Richie Allen radio show of the week. As usual, I've got two very interesting guests lined up for you between now and 7 o'clock. You can join in through Twitter, BBG Richie, or dropping me a message through the website. It's the BBG, not the BBC. You're listening to the Richie Allen Radio Show, live from Salford in Greater Manchester. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host... Richie Allen. First up this hour, Rebecca Barrett will join the programme. Rebecca is a teacher um, who is involved in the National Party of Ireland. I saw a pretty heartfelt tweet from Rebecca this afternoon. You may or may not know that from today, if you want, if you wish to dine indoors, that is at a restaurant or a cafe, or drink indoors at a pub, you need to be uh, well in possession of a vaccine passport. Yes, that's in the Republic of Ireland. It's not good, is it? Rebecca Barrett joins me this hour to talk about that and much more. And coming up in the second hour of the programme, I reached out to Dan overnight. Now, Dan tweets. I will share his Twitter handle with you as the programme goes on. He spent 20 years in venture capital, a lot of that looking at emerging technologies. And he put a thread together yesterday, which is fascinating. And it's about where he thinks this is all going. He started it with a story in the Daily Mail or the Mail on Sunday about a new Britcoin digital currency being planned by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak. This is very important. We'll get into that with Dan in the second hour of the programme. Yeah, it'll be a busy one. And uh, yes... Yes, I'm having a decent old day. It's warm but pleasant here. We don't have the temperatures we had last week or or the week before. So all is good here at Richie Allen Show Towers. And uh, you can tell me how you are. I'm always interested in how you are. By the way, my old pal Mark Windows will be on with me later on in the week. You might want to know that. I reckon it's been over a year since Mark was on. It'll be good to catch up with him again. That's Windows on the World, by the way. Uh, James Perloff will be on the show tomorrow. Like I said, busy old week here at the programme. Now, everyone's up in arms about the Trafalgar Square event on Saturday. The media was in a frenzy this morning. You might be aware, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, packed into Trafalgar Square on Saturday. There was something going on, a World Freedom Day event. I think there were simultaneous events elsewhere. And in Trafalgar Square, a stage had been erected and some speakers took to the stage to say things about the current situation. Okay. The media was in a frenzy this morning. Apparently, a woman called Kate Shimarani, who was a nurse one time, but was then struck off, um, compared, now allegedly, mind, allegedly compared NHS doctors and nurses to the Nazis. It isn't actually clear if she actually called for any harm to be done to anyone 
but that was heavily implied by the media today. There was outrage this morning. Here's Labour leader Keir Starmer speaking with LBC's Nick Ferrari. Police are looking at footage from an anti-lockdown protest where a speaker referenced the hanging of doctors and nurses at the Nuremberg trials. This was Kate Shemirani, a former nurse, asking for details of NHS workers to be collected and sent to her. Reminding everyone, of course, you once served as DPP. If this were to cross your desk, is it a crime? Yeah, it's absolutely shocking. And I think the footage was, I mean, I saw a bit of it just on social media, was shocking um, um, to see. um, And um, I do hope it's going to be investigated and dealt with um, appropriately. But it was absolutely shocking. And some of the uh, things that are said and done in the names of some of these protests, I think, are an affront to all of us that believe in everything the NHS and the front line are doing. Hmm. Keir Starmer there. He said it is a crime, is it? I'm not sure it's a crime. Asking for the details of NHS doctors and nurses, asking for them to be sent to her. That's a bit sinister, all right. I certainly wouldn't like it if I was working in the NHS, not that I would be working in the NHS. Uh, She then said at the Nuremberg trials, the doctors and nurses stood trial and they hung. If you are a doctor or a nurse, now is the time to get off that bus. Get off it and stand with us, the people, all around the world. They are rising, said Shemirani. Her son has been speaking to the media again. He's spoken to the Daily Mail today, or the Mail Online. He has previously spoken to BBC News 24 about his mother, saying that, in his opinion, she's not really all there. Yeah. Now, Nick Ferrari is a colleague. His name is James O'Brien. He was desperate to get into it too. Something needs to be done about Shemirani and her ilk, of course. Before we hear his thoughts on Shemirani, pay real close attention to the beginning of this clip. O'Brien references a Twitter exchange that he had himself with a conspiracy theorist. When I think someone looks sensible or susceptible to a little bit of reason, nine times out of ten they're not, which is why one tries less and less. But I tried to point out to somebody the other day that something they'd sent me about the Pfizer vaccine was was hogwash and it had been fact-checked by Reuters and shown to be hogwash. And he came back saying, well, well, I think you'll find the chairman of Roy Thompson Reuters is on the board of Pfizer, so they're lying to you. And I I just thought, I can't can't reach you. Uh, Could it be that he can't reach you, O'Brien, maybe? The chairman of Thompson Reuters, which is the world's biggest news agency, and the biggest provider of content to broadcast media, just like yours. The chairman of Reuters is on the board of Pfizer. And you don't have a problem with that, James. I can't reach you. Have I made it worse by trying to? Uh, Other people looking at this now, this exchange? My Twitter, for those of you who've got better things to do with your life, has become something of a of a tourist attraction. Dominic Cummings and I were having uh, uh, an interesting exchange of views last night. Uh, and, and so does, does that make it worse now? Has someone looked at that and thought, ah, yes, the chairman of Thomson Reuters is on the board of Pfizer, someone who doesn't know a lot about non-executive directorships and, you know, the interplay between big global companies might go away thinking, well, maybe there, but there's no smoke without fire. What was that? It's worth, worth paying attention to that. The chairman of Thomson Reuters is on the board of Pfizer, someone who doesn't know a lot about non-executive directorships and, you know, the interplay between big global companies might go away thinking, well, maybe there, but there's no smoke without fire. The interplay between big global companies. The interplay. The interplay between big global companies. Hmm. 
video doing the rounds on Instagram. It's been seen millions of times. It's of a woman who uh, was seemingly destroyed by being injected with the Pfizer jab. I don't know if you've read the story. Go to richieallen.co.uk and check it out if you haven't. I think you should check it out. Millions of people have watched it. A perfectly healthy woman given the Pfizer jab. Georgina Rose Segal uh, can now barely stand up straight. And James O'Brien is wondering why he can't get through to a guy who's concerned that the chairman of Reuters is also on the board of Pfizer. Reuters, the biggest provider of news content to the broadcast media on planet Earth. This is the definition of gaslighting. This, it, it, to me, it feels like every day I do this programme, I can't hear anything more ridiculous. And then I hear this. The chairman of Thomson Reuters is on the board of Pfizer, someone who doesn't know a lot about non-executive directorships. So if you're a bit thick, right, you're concerned that a guy from Reuters, the chairman of Reuters, is on the board of Pfizer. You might be a bit thick even because you don't know anything about non-executive directorships. Nothing to see here. You know, the interplay between big global companies might go away thinking, well, maybe there's no smoke without fire. Wow. I'll leave that one there. O'Brien, of course, isn't a journalist. He is a London School of Economics graduate. How O'Brien ended up on radio and television is anybody's guess. You probably won't be surprised to learn that the London School of Economics is an institution which has received hundreds of millions of pounds from... You've guessed it, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Am I suggesting or implying that James O'Brien has taken or received any of that money? Of course not. Not in a million years. But they learn how to think at these institutions. They learn what is acceptable to think and what is acceptable to say and what isn't acceptable to think and what isn't acceptable to say. Madness, isn't it? Nothing to see here. Please disperse. Chairman of, of, of Reuters is on the board of Pfizer. You've got no problems there. Whatsoever. No no, no problems, you know. Anyway, O'Brien went on to talk about Kate Shemarani and then David Icke, strangely enough. I'm fairly confident that that clip I just played you there, uh, calling for doctors and nurses to stop caring for people and alluding to the fact that uh, Nazi murderers who uh, were qualified medics were, were hung after the Nuremberg trial. I'm fairly confident... And remember, we live in a world that elected Donald Trump, so you can only ever be fairly confident that nobody's going to have listened to that clip and thought, ooh, ooh, I might get, I might get myself a bit of that. And that's what makes me think that shining a light on this sort of stuff is a disinfectant, even, dare I say, perhaps a form of vaccine, a, a form of cure. This fella has been, I think, thrown off Twitter in the last few days. He's not up to date on current affairs. David Icke was thrown off Twitter about a year ago, anyway. And they will tell these storytellers how the demons persuaded millions, billions around the world to believe in their plan to bring global tyranny to this world. A plan that involved a fake virus, a fake test, and fake death certificates to give the illusion of a deadly disease that has never and does not exist. Okay. Um, I mean... 
you'd shout nurse in normal circumstances, but this is no laughing matter. That's uh, David Icke, who I think used to play in goal for Northampton Town, uh, claiming that the world is, uh, I don't know, under the thrall of demons. Uh, I, I think he once claimed that the Queen was a lizard, although I may have slightly misremembered that. Mm. Yeah, James O'Brien there talking about David Icke. Okay, Morani. I don't know why certain people, and th- th- there's nothing loaded about what I'm going to say. I don't know why anyone would want to be seen at an event like the one that took place on Saturday on the same platform as somebody like Kate Chemerani. I don't understand that. I actually don't care, really. I've had quite a few emails today and particularly yesterday from people asking me, what what's going on, Richie? Um, I don't know what's going on. I really don't. I, I, I So the best thing to do when you don't know what's going on is probably just to shut up. I wouldn't have anything to do with Kate Chemerani. If I was going to be addressing a large group of people, and I'm not talking about deplatforming people now, I wouldn't deplatform anybody at all. But on the day, on a given day, I'll give you an example of what I mean. If Kate Chemerani was on a radio show and then they invited me on the day the day after... I would go on the day after. But if you said to me, will you stand up there and say something uh, just after this woman has spoken, I would say no. Why? And I would say, well, I don't want to be associated with that woman. And And that's all really I have to say about that. What I would say is, the people who organised that event on Saturday were not Gareth and David. There were, it was, it was a third party. Do you understand? A third party organised that event and invited speakers. Maybe there are those who spoke on Saturday are now a little bit embarrassed about the fact that they were, you know, sharing a, a stage with Chemerani. Again, listen carefully to what I'm saying. I'm not saying deplatform someone at all. The point I'm making is often people who've got something very interesting to say um, can be marginalised by the presence of well, a bit of a nutter, really, is, is, is my opinion on it. And I made this point on, on Saturday because it was cannon fodder for the BBC disinformation. I know, put your jokes in here, insert joke here. Their disinformation reporters had a field day with it, with a woman shrieking about Nuremberg and asking for the addresses of doctors and nurses. Sure, they had a field day with it. I made the point of the to the disinformation reporters, again, you can choke on the irony, that why don't they speak about um, independent radio shows like the one you're listening to now with 200,000 listeners a day that has featured people like Sir Charit Bakhti, Martin Kuldorf, Dolores Cahill and others. But they don't. It's easy. They go for the Shemaranis. I'll be talking about this in great detail later in the week with Mark Windows, who's had plenty to say on this subject. This is not an attack now in any way on Chemerani. I don't know the woman personally. Um, But nobody, nobody who doesn't have any inkling as to what's going on, nobody who's beginning to wonder is going to pay any attention to Kate Chemerani because she comes across as a bit of a loose cannon and says extraordinary things. I wouldn't appear on the same stage as her on a given day. That's me. Why others would choose to do so, knowing full well what she is, I have no idea. And there's nothing loaded about that. You would need to ask them.
maybe they'll answer you, maybe they won't. I don't care. I've said it a thousand times. The, the answer to the paradigm that we're confronting now isn't in marching on Saturdays and Sundays in London. It isn't. And I think you know that deep down, whether you like it or not. And I put it to Gareth, who's a, who's a, who's a great mate of mine. And he'll be back on again in the future. And he gave me a good answer, didn't he? He said, Richie, for me, it's a great energy boost. It's great to be with people of, of um, you know, of a similar understanding. And, and I get all of that. Um, but the media have had a field day with Chemerani. And you wonder, don't you? You just wonder. Anyway, let's talk about vaccine passports and students then. The UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson apparently would like to make it law that students cannot attend lectures unless they are double jabbed. Again, there's been a lot of discussion of this today. Here's the Children's Minister, Vicky Ford, speaking on Good Morning Britain this morning on that subject. Students who have been kept out of lectures for pretty much a whole year of their university education might only be allowed back in if they're double jabbed. So obviously we've prioritised access to education throughout the whole pandemic and that's actually you know, why schools were the last to close and the first reopen back in March. And we obviously want to get all students back to university and for that to be as normal as possible when they return. So I think it is really important that young people do step forward for that vaccine because we know that that is the way in which they can um, maximise the safety of not only for them, but also of their whole university community, but also maximise their freedoms because from August the 16th, of course, all adults that have been double vaccinated, which includes the over 18 year olds, they won't need to self-isolate if they have been in contact with someone unless they have a positive test or a showing symptoms themselves. So the double vaccination is really important route towards normality. Is it, um, is it true, is, Vicky Ford, is it true that the Prime Minister's raging about the relatively low vaccine uptake? That's the report uh, in The Times today, that, that actually this isn't just about uh, safety, this is, this is a motivating factor. You know, introducing vaccine passports for nightclubs, for university lectures, and perhaps even for Premier League games is about forcing people effectively to get vaccinated. Well, you know, talking of Premier League games, you had Gareth Southgate yesterday encouraging young people, please, to get the vaccine because that's the way they get back, back. We all get back that freedom for all of us. It's such an important part of being able to unlock the wider society, which is what we're obviously doing, is the vaccination. Hmm. Vicky Ford there. Back to Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition party. Insert joke there. Uh, very adept at no opposition whatsoever, I would say. He's got it down cold, no opposition. Ferrari asks him, what do you think then, Keir, vaccine passports for football and for concerts and even for lectures, Keir Starmer? Yeah, wouldn't it? I will look carefully at what the government puts forward um, because they have... Well, I have to say what you've said so far, you, you're, you seem minded to support yeah, it. I, I, don't uh, hear, I don't hear sort of blatant opposition to the idea currently. No, Nick, I want to be pragmatic about it. I want to make sure that um, sports and all sectors are opened up as quickly as possible. I think that um, passports on their own aren't enough because, as we know, um, sadly, you can be double-jabbed and still get the new um, variant. So it's got to be passports plus testing. Um, 
I wouldn't, and, and that would be for sporting events, etc. It depends on what the government puts on the table. What I don't want to see, just to be very clear about this, Nick, is I don't want to see vaccine passports used um, on an everyday basis for access to critical things like health, dentistry, food, etc. So um, for, for sporting events, I'll look at what the government puts on the table. I want to be pragmatic because we all want um, all business sectors and sporting sectors to return as quickly as possible, but not not for everyday use because I don't want to see people denied health, dentistry, food um, because they haven't got a vaccine passport. Yeah, because they haven't got a passport. Yeah. No opposition from Starmer. Uh, they they will undoubtedly support the government, whatever the government says. Uh, be under no illusion. Uh, they will. And, um, you know, I don't do predictions that well. Although lately, in the last 12 to 15 months, I've, I've a better track record than I ever did before that. I believe wholeheartedly that the next... This is going to sound like a really... This is going to sound like... It's going to sound so obvious... I believe that the next Prime Minister will be a Labour Prime Minister to take this on even further. I'm not sure if that'll be Starmer, mind. It might be somebody else. I don't know. Hey, listen, you won't believe it. Guess who's in the news talking about COVID? You'll never believe it. Ever. The man himself. Possibly the most patronising Irish-American there's ever been. Yes, none other than Michael Flatley. He was on Good Morning Britain too. And he was talking about the return of theatres and vaccine passports. I think you might hear Susanna Reid speaking to him, asking him about, well, what do you think about the passports if it means getting the theatres open again? Think about vaccine passports for people to come back to the theatre. I'd better stay away from anything uh, political, Suzanne. I think people should make up their own minds about their own lives. Uh, But... Better people than me will make those decisions. Yeah. If, if there's a sense, though, Michael, that we can get... Because you know only too well how difficult it's been for your dancers over the last couple of years. You know, I think you say they're in the prime of their life. This is when they should be on the stage performing. They've not been able to. If it, yes. if it, if it allows the audiences to come back in a safe way, it, it, would you consider that to be a good thing? I, I think that, um, yeah, yes, I think it's a good thing that people can come back and, and see the live shows ban. I, I think one of the most important things that everybody is overlooking in this is people's mental health. Yeah. Uh, you know, locking people at home, I, I'm not sure that that's wise uh, for mental health reasons. I, I just don't think that's wise. Uh, I understand what everybody's trying to do, but it's not my place to make those calls or those decisions. There's enough entertainers uh, teaching us politics in this world. We don't need another one. So I leave that to the to the powers that be. Uh, but I certainly think uh, seeing a great show uh, like ours or, or Andrew Lloyd Webber as a perfect example, we need his shows back. People need to scream and clap and be happy again. They need. We all need to get our, our um, spirit flowing again. We do indeed. We do, Michael. We need to get our spirit flow- flowing again and we need to clap and stamp our feet. But not to Andrew Lloyd Webber's musicals. Please, God, no. Anything. Anything but those... Mother of God. 23 minutes past five. Thank you for all of your tweets and thanks for being sensible. I mean, when I say thanks for being sensible, <laughs> thank you for, uh, for even if you're disagreeing with me, for being adult about it. Uh, except for Delroy, who says, uh, but you, Richie, sound like one of those naysayers when you say all that crap, though, 
just shut up about it and let it go because it panders to the identity divide and rule bollocks and right now that is not good enough brother man I think I kind of understand you I get this all the time it isn't that often that I criticise people that are speaking out about Covid or anything else it isn't very often and when I do I inevitably get a message from somebody saying well what the hell are you doing at least this person is doing something But, but of course they're not doing anything at all, only looking for attention and screaming a lot of nonsense. That's what they're doing. While what I do is I broadcast to 200,000 people a day with a podcast that's in the top 50 in any category in the UK, and that's competing with BBC shows. I platform people, doctors and and scientists that can't get on other media organisations. I give them a platform. That's what I do. Don't brag about it, ever. I find it funny when people say, well, what do you do? What do you do? Keith says, Richie, you, you're saying you wouldn't go on the same radio show or stage as Shemarani. Keith, you're as deaf as a post, pal. Get a syringe for your ears. I never said that. I said I'd be quite happy to appear on a radio show that somebody like Shemarani had been on. But I would not speak at a public event with lots of people there while she was on the same bill. What would be the point of it? Do you understand? Or are you that thick that you don't understand? In which case, that's fair enough. I'm not the brightest spark in the box either. I made it perfectly clear what I meant. Live and let live. I wouldn't deplatform or silence anybody. But I would not stand on a stage with a nutter like Shemarani, who's calling for people to give her the names and addresses or the names and details of doctors and nurses. Why would you waste your time speaking on that platform to a crowd of people who know exactly what you're going to say because they've heard it a thousand times before? I'd prefer to speak to people, given the opportunity, that have heard of my radio show, but that think that I'm an idiot and that my guests are idiots and that we are crazy conspiracy theorists I'd love to be given 20 minutes with those people. I'd love to speak at the Oxford Union. But I've turned down a million requests over the years. Richie, will you do truth juice, will you? Will you come here? No. Why? I'm only speaking to the converted. It's a waste of my time. I strive every day to think of what I can do better than what I'm already doing to reach those on the fence or to reach those who think that we're crazy. That's what I do. Sometimes um, not very successfully. Other times maybe maybe a little bit successfully. I don't, want to, I don't want to preach to the converted. I really don't. And I wouldn't waste my time travelling to London to address a group of people on the same stage as a shrieking fishwife like Shemarani. I made my reason and perfectly clear you don't have to agree with it I couldn't care less and I think you probably know that by now here's the clash then kicking off the programme or kicking off the music on the programme I'm going live to Dublin in a couple of minutes time Rebecca Barrett joins me you don't want to miss her got a great second hour for you too Monday's programme good to be with you that is music from The Clash on the Richie Allen radio show 29 and a half minutes it is past the hour 
Let's welcome our first guest to the programme. I'm looking forward to uh, meeting her and chatting with her. I retweeted something that she put out today. It's um, it's a difficult day today for Irish people, not just back home, but around the world. I told you earlier on that from today, Irish patrons who wish to dine indoors back home, well, they need to produce a COVID pass or a vaccine passport. You know what I think of that. It's tyranny. By any other name, it's it's dreadful. And I came across Rebecca's tweet today. Rebecca is a teacher by trade, um, one-time politician as well, and she's a mum. And she says, from today, my family are discriminated against. We will not be bullied into taking part in a vaccine trial. As a mother, I will always protect my children. It is for them and their future that I continue to fight. I'm delighted to welcome to the programme Rebecca Barrett. Rebecca, thanks for giving us some of your time today. How are you? Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Richard, for having me on. Horrible day, um, eh? Yes. yes, absolutely. I mean, today is the beginning of a two-tier society in Ireland. Today is the beginning of discrimination, you know. Um, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible that we've reached this point. It's incredible that people think that this is an acceptable situation for us to be in. I mean, my neighbours who might be vaccinated can go and they can eat indoors and I'll be stopped on my way in and I won't have a vaccine passport to present and I won't be allowed to go in. It's it's an incredible point we're at, you know. And when you, when you said to me just there, Rebecca, that people seem to be okay with it, has that been your general experience in your own neighbourhood? Um, Are people happy to go along with this? It depends. It depends. Honestly, personally, No. People in my family, I know a couple of people in my family have been vaccinated. My own mother has actually been vaccinated. She's 65 and she's actually, she's very frightened of it, to be honest. And she's very, she ha- she's very frightened of doing the wrong thing. She wants to do the right thing. She wants to, you know, be a good citizen and she sees this as that's what she should do. And since she has had the vaccine, she's kind of changed her mind on that now. And she kind of wishes she hadn't. She'd wish she'd waited a bit longer. But she has said to me, Yes, I have the vaccine passport. Yes, I am vaccinated. I can go in and eat in a restaurant. She said, but that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. She said, imagine if like me and her and the children, my my sons, wanted to go and have a cup of coffee somewhere um, in an afternoon. She said, what is she going to do? Sit inside and have us sit out in the rain, you know? Yeah, she said, it's yeah. ridiculous. She, she doesn't agree with it at all. So no, in my own personal circles, I have not experienced very many people who are okay with it. Most people seem to be kind of saying, look, this is a bit far, you know, this is ridiculous. This, you're pushing it now. But, I mean, it's, it's surprising that anybody is okay with it, I guess, that anybody is okay with it. Yeah, this morning, Sky's Irish reporter, Sky News' Irish yeah. reporter, Stephen something or other, he was in Dublin and he, he popped into one or two bars and... Each owner he spoke with, Rebecca, said that they regretted it, that they weren't thrilled about it, but it was the law of the land. And I couldn't help but wonder, well, if enough of you felt like that, that it's not right, well, just ignore the law then and tell people when they come in, look, I don't care what your uh, passport status is. I'm not interested in that. Just sit down and order up. I'll get you a pint and I'll get you a menu. You know, is is there an opportunity being missed here by by the... Do you think so? Yeah, definitely. There are some, there definitely have been some, and I, I have retweeted them on, on my Twitter account and on my Instagram. There have been some um, places that have said, no, we're, we're not going to open up. We're not, we're not going to. They've actually said, now they haven't said, we're going to open up and let anybody come in. Nobody, I haven't seen anybody saying that. 
but I have seen a good few places saying we're not going to open up indoor dining until everybody can dine indoors. We're, we're not going to, you know, separate people like that. That's not right. Now, I do think that it is a missed opportunity. I do think that because um, if everybody, you know, if everybody kind of came together and said, look, this is this is just not right, you know. And, and also, I do find it strange because in Ireland, for many years, we kind of have this like this Irisher attitude, you know, kind of, um, yeah. you know yourself, like it would just be, uh, oh, yes, you're vaccinated, yes, you're head on in, you know, you're grand. You kind of would expect that almost, that you'd go to the door and you'd get, oh, yeah, yes, you're one, just head in, head in. But it's not like that now. It's a very militant kind of, a, you know, people are very afraid. That's what I would say. People are very afraid of doing the wrong thing when it comes to the law. And I feel like even the Gardaí have kind of stepped everything up a notch and people are nervous of the Gardaí. And there was always kind of a, um, a friendly relationship between the Irish people and, and the, the law forces here. You know, we, there was kind of a, you know, we kind of trusted each other and you, you, you expected the Gardaí to kind of be on your side and looking out for you. And if you were a decent person and doing the right thing, you know, everything was grand. But it, it almost feels like they're kind of out to get you now. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a very different atmosphere. And even the Gardaí are, are saying, you know, it's interfering with their, their general policing duties, this COVID madness. Like even the Gardaí are saying they're finding it hard to do normal policing because, you know, their time is so taken up with this other nonsense of trying to make sure people aren't, you know, when, when we had the lockdown, people couldn't go inter-county travel and stuff yeah. like that, you know. Um, but but it's done a lot of damage, I think, to our relationship with the Gardaí. I think it's done a lot of damage to that. This is really important, Rebecca. And I'm not um, yeah. trying to defend bad behaviour by the police here or the Gardaí yeah. back home. But yeah. it's 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 easy, and I'm not accusing you of this at all. We we do sometimes forget that behind that uniform, there's a man and a woman. And yeah, this fear absolutely. that you talked about, this all pervasive fear, they're bound to be feeling it as well. I mean, for many of them, yeah. they've, they've probably b- swallowed this hook, line and sinker. Now, I'm not saying there isn't any COVID. I'm not saying that at all. But the evidence I've been able to see in the last 15 months tells me that it isn't something that we should be terribly worried about. We certainly shouldn't have locked down society and closed businesses. But yet, as you said, so many of the people that surround us, they've been taken in. Tell us about your experience. It's great having you on, you've been a teacher because you're observant, yeah. you're, 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 you're incredibly well, articulate as well. Tell us about that propaganda last year. How um, bad did it get I'm- back home? I'm not actually teaching in a school anymore now. I was a primary school teacher and then I had my son six years ago. He's six now. And um, my first son. And I stayed out to to mind him after he was born. And then I decided I would actually homeschool my children. Yeah. So I actually homeschool my three children now. I knew I that. I knew that. Two. But you'll always be a teacher, Rebecca. Yeah. You'll always be a teacher. Yeah. I know. And, and, and I was going <laughs> I to come on to that as well. Yeah. I remember during the general election when I put down on my form, you know, that I was a primary school teacher because it's a profession and you're always entitled to use your, yeah. you know, your professional title. So I put down primary school teacher. But of course, I had all the Twitter lefties out, you know, shouting at me going, you know, a homeschooler's not a teacher. Homeschooler, you can't oh, say that. Right, can't yeah, say yeah. that. Course, but yeah. yes, of course. I know. Yeah. But um, no, my own my own experience now. Um, I, I, the main thing that I have noticed from people is that they're frightened. People feel frightened, people, people feel bullied and people feel intimidated. And it doesn't matter which direction they're frightened in, they're just frightened. Some people are too frightened to get the vaccine. Some people are too frightened to not get the vaccine. Everyone is just frightened and everyone is bullied and everyone is intimidated. And it's just, even the fact, it's this constant like drip, drip, drip. You turn on the radio and the first thing you hear is, you know, how many COVID cases, how yeah. many this, how many, and it's, it's constant and it's like let's turn on the news every evening now we don't even watch we can't even watch the RTE news anymore in our house it's 
banned in our house. We cannot sit down <laughs> at six o'clock and watch it. Oh my God, it's appalling. But if when we used to watch it, you would sit down and every single evening you have the report of how many cases this, how many cases that. And it's, it's fear mongering. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's a disproportionate response because our, our population is 6.8 million, right? 6.8 million. And according to them, if you go by their statistics, if you accept what they're saying, take what they're saying completely at its face value, there have been 5,000 deaths in two yeah, years. In two years, yeah. Yeah, and at that's, the same that's time... That's not a proportionate response. That's no. not proportionate. They've shut down the whole country. They've shut down the whole world. Like, that's, it's not proportionate. How many people have died by suicide from depression, from mental health issues? How many people haven't been able to go and get cancer treatment? How many people... Like my own son... I'm sure this was on my Twitter as well. My own son actually had an eye injury um, two weeks ago and I rang the GP to try and get him in just to get checked because I'd be very cautious when it would be his eye and he's, you know, he's only small and his eye is growing and developing and I don't want him to be damaged, you know. And I rang the GP and the GP said, sorry, we can't see you for a week because we're doing vaccines. We're not taking any patients. Yeah, that's that's same here as well. It's the same here for yeah. for non-elective surgery and for things yeah. that are deemed to be minor. People are just left yeah. kind of in limbo here. It's yeah. I, I did see that. How much damage yeah. has been done? Yes. Exactly. Is anybody yeah. trying? I know the answer to this, so it's going to sound a bit sick. But is anybody back home trying to quantify that damage that you just described there? Um, I don't know, to be honest with you. I, I don't have any figures. I, I do know this is that they're not releasing um, the statistics for suicides in the past two years. They, they're not releasing them. They haven't released the number of suicides. And I find that very interesting. Why are they not releasing them? You know, is it because they're they're massively increased? You know, I, 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 you see, in my days, it it's funny you say that now, in, in, in my days in radio back home, I'd be salivating to, you know, I'd be so anxious to get a politician on to confront them with that question. Tell me, Minister, how many people have committed suicide? Tell me how many people have died because their cancer diagnosis was a bit too late. But we're back to the media again, the media, the media. I mean, you have, you've experienced this. I should mention, by the way, we've got Rebecca Barrett on the programme. Rebecca is a member of the National Party in Ireland back home and she was a candidate in the election last year. So you know just how bad the media is. I mean, I watch it from afar, but I see the bias towards, you know, oh, let, let's say this, I don't want to say smaller parties, but you know what I mean. You know, the non-traditional yes, exactly. parties. The bias against you. Exactly, yes. Horrendous. Mm -hmm. It is. Oh, it's incredible. Oh, it's absolutely incredible. Sure. My my husband, um, Justin, ran in the Dublin Bay South by election. And, um, you know, there was numerous radio programs, um, numerous, like anything that had all, every single one of the other candidates on, he wasn't on. Do you know what I mean? He wasn't on. Um, There's massive bias. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. You're not getting the full picture from the mainstream media at all. You know, you're getting one side of the story and it's their agenda. They're pushing that and you're just not hearing anything else. And it's funny because once you see it, you can't unsee it. You know, it's in the way they say things on the news and it's it's they, they twist statistics and they twist the numbers and they say them in a strange way. And and like some evenings they'll report the number of deaths, but some evenings they'll report the number of cases and some evenings yeah. they'll report it in percentages. And it's it's to get you, it's to confuse you and to mess with your head and to just all these numbers flying at you. You know what I mean? It's, um, it, it's they're pushing their own agenda. They're very much focused on their own agenda and they're 
there's a lot of bias. Yeah, exactly. There's a bit of lockstep to this, isn't there? Because what you've described mm-hmm. there is the same here in the media. I've got friends. Yeah. I've got friends in Europe. I'm sure you have as well, and they tell me it's the same in their country. It's been done the same way in every country around the world, and I don't think that's a coincidence. It sounds to me, yeah. Rebecca, like that when this began last year, that this was a massive shock to you, that you didn't see this coming. I didn't, no, I didn't either. I never saw this happening. What about you? No, I did not, no. No, I, I didn't see this coming. When all when all this started, uh, myself and my husband sat down, and, and I can remember saying to him, like, this is horrific, this is, this is like, what is going on? And he turned to me and he said, there's something odd about this. Now, Justin always just has an instinct for these things. And he just said, there's something very, very odd. And I said, like, what are you talking about? What do you mean there's something odd? I said, people are like, this is, people are, are dying. What's going on? I don't know. And he said, no, he said, just wait, just wait a little while and, and, and see. And, you know, other political parties came out and made statements, et cetera, et cetera. And the National Party, we just kind of waited and we, we just waited to see what was going to happen. And Justin, I mean, he just knew that there was something strange. There's something more behind all of this. It's a very, um, I don't know what to word, organised. It's a very organised thing and it's very coordinated yeah. across Europe. Like you said, it's not just Ireland, it's not just the UK. It's it's very coordinated across Europe. And there, there's something more to it, you know. It's not about protecting people from a disease. It's not about that. And I also, like, I actually think myself and my and the kids and Justin have this back in November before it was even like a big thing. Not November last year, the year before. 2019. I we even had the coronavirus. We, we were sick. We had like a bad flu. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't go to the doctor because it was actually Christmas Day. We had it. I couldn't believe it. Like we were sick Christmas Day. But we had a very bad flu. We felt exhausted. We lost our sense of taste. We lost our sense of smell. And we felt awful. And all of us did. And the children felt less worse than we did. And I can remember at the time when they brought out the, the COVID, they were saying, uh, you know, children don't get it as badly as adults and it'll be fine. And so we kind of thought, OK, that sounds like what we actually had. And I think we did have it. Now, we weren't like running around the place healthy as can be. We were sick, but we were sick for about four days and then we were fine. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not proportional. It's not what they're saying it is. And a close family relative of mine has now we weren't diagnosed with COVID. We didn't get a test because it wasn't a thing then. It wasn't a thing yet. That was November and it wasn't a thing till what, April maybe um, or March. But a close family relative of mine actually has he has been he has a, a lung problems. He, he He's on the list for a lung transplant and he has been diagnosed that he had the COVID. He actually had it. And he is 72 years of age. He has lung issues. He has had the COVID and he has fully recovered. He is fine. There's no and, doubt. And God, he's yeah, fine. Yeah. But he's fine. And these the, the statistics that they've bombarded people with, the most important ones, of course, are that um, the, 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 the average age of somebody dying with it, and that, that isn't dying of it. This is another wonderful twist yeah, of language, you know. But um, mm-hmm. the, the average age is, is, in, is in the mid-80s. And for the UK and Ireland, we would expect, you know, the average age of life anyway is about 81 or 82. It's, it's, it's madness that we're in this situation. Rebecca Barrett is our guest. And I want, just, just to chat a little bit about the children, not from a personal, wouldn't be asking any personal questions, of course, Rebecca, but because you've had experience as a primary school teacher and you've got your own youngsters, what sort of impact could you describe your own concerns for how oh this lockdown will impact on the development of, of kids, of children? Oh, it's, it's incredible. It's actually incredible to see it. My my oldest is six and my youngest, is ju- he's just turned two. 
And the difference in them is incredible because although my six-year-old is old enough to understand what's going on, my two-year-old has basically grown up in a world where he hasn't been able to go into a shop. He hasn't been able to see, well, he has gone into a shop with me, but he hasn't been able to see people's faces, you know, and that's a big thing with children. They haven't been able to see people's faces. They haven't been able to, you know, interact visually with people. And it's a massive thing for small children, like babies. So many babies have come into the world in the last two years and they're missing out on so much and really simple things like a soft play area you know like those those places that the kids go with the slides and the balls and all that stuff they, they my, my two-year-old has never been to one and it's incredible to me that he's never been to one but they're all closed and they're never going to reopen like that's just not going to happen i mean they say we'll get back to normal some things are never coming back no matter what happens because those places were struggling as it was with with insurance and stuff that some places are never coming back there are some things the children just won't get to experience there's things they've missed out on you know and like at least at least my children are homeschooled so I can protect them as much as possible from, you know, the impact of it. Like, but, but other children, first of all, they were separated from their school friends for a massive period of time. Then they were actually initially they were they were super spreaders and the people were looking at children. I can remember bringing my children into the shops and people would be looking at you. And one cash, cashier actually said to me, could you not get somebody to mind them? Like, could somebody not watch them while I did the shopping, you know, so that I wasn't bringing them into the shop? Wow. And uh, yeah, it was incredible. Like, I, I was I was shocked. But first of all, children were seen as super spreaders. And then they were separated from all their friends at school. And then when they were finally allowed to go back to school, um, children of a certain age were expected to wear masks. And I mean, secondary school children have had to wear masks and children doing their leaving cert- have, have had to wear masks. And it's like we all know how stuffy the classrooms are at the best of times and especially around the summer and imagine having to sit there with your mask on trying to study trying to do anything and it just I mean it's just appalling the way they've treated children in this especially in Ireland at the moment children are second class citizens I mean they're not even second class citizens they're just treated abysmally in this country their their mental health their actual physical health everything is just children are bottom of the list they're not interested they can't speak for themselves so they're quiet push them aside they're not the squeaky wheel don't worry about it it's absolutely atrocious the impact this has had on children i mean it'll go these these children are going to grow up and they're going to grow into adults and they're going to have major issues they're going to have you know they're going to be very resentful of i mean all i can all i can do is hope that i have done my best to explain to my children what's going on in the world and i would say to other parents do your best to explain to your children what's going on and and try and take away from the fear of it. You know what I mean? Because like so many adults, like I was saying, are frightened. Try not to pass that on to the children because so many children are frightened. Like I see small children going in to shops wearing masks and doing the hand sanitizer thing. And, you know, they're not required to wear them, but the children are frightened, you know, yeah. because they're copying the adults. The children are scared. They don't want this big, scary disease, you know. So I would say to people just try and not frighten your children and try and limit it as much as possible, limit the damage you can do with them, you know. We're hearing stories here about children presenting with eating disorders at, you know, at at levels that would be far, far higher than people would normally expect. And places in institutions, I shouldn't say institutions, I should say hospitals, places in hospitals for children with eating disorders are at a premium now. I don't know if that's going on back home as well, but I I wouldn't be surprised if it is. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know specifically about that, but I really wouldn't be surprised. Absolutely, and like something, a very simple thing, you know, you, you, if you, if you lock a teenager up at home, right, you, a young girl. I'm just thinking of myself when I would have been a teenager. You, you lock a young girl up at home, right? What's she going to do? She's going to sit there. She's going to watch the television, and she's just going to be just eating junk food. Then she's going to feel bad about her body image. 
then, you know, what's she going to do? You know, it's going to affect her mental health. It's going to affect her body image. And then she has all she has. The only lifeline she has is, is social media and all the social media has all these, you know, specific ways she's supposed to look. And it's a complete, you know, it's oh, it's an absolute mess, to be honest. Just children have been so affected by this. It's it's incredible. And it's just it's appalling. And like the fact that now I can't take my children into a little restaurant and just sit down and have, have a meal with them. And, and in fact, I don't think my two year old, I'm trying to think, I think my two year old when he was maybe six months was in a restaurant and that's the only time he's ever been in one. I don't think he's ever been in a restaurant apart from when he was six months old, which is shocking to me. It's dreadful. And this is, this is giving you sleepless nights, I would imagine. Not just you, Rebecca, but, yeah. but parents up and yeah. down the country. Mm-hmm. And the other thing now, there, 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 there's so many things they're saying now about we need, you know, 90%. We have 69% of Irish people vaccinated, fully vaccinated with both vaccines now. And they're saying, you know, we need 99%. We need, we need everybody vaccinated. And they're saying, you know, when the schools reopen in September, there's going to be a big issue with that. And the children are going to be spreading this disease and it's going to be awful. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to scare parents into vaccinating their children. And we're already at the point now where we're at the 18 year olds are being vaccinated. We've gotten we've gone by age here and we've gone down as far as 18. And what's going to happen next? And I've seen numerous articles and I've seen things where people are saying um, children age five, age six should be vaccinated. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to start pressuring parents. They're going to say, you know, really, you know, they'd be a lot safer in school if they were vaccinated. And it's going to get to a point, I reckon, after the Halloween break, when they come back after Halloween, you're going to be told, no, you can't come back if your child's not vaccinated. And parents are going to be at a loss. They're not going to know what to do because they're going to obviously want to send their children to school, but they're not going to be able to. It's going to be, it's going to be, and the very best case scenario for those parents is they're going to do what they're doing now with and a two-tier society. They're going to separate. The children. They're going to have a classroom with vaccinated children and a classroom with unvaccinated Do you think children. that's a possibility, Rebecca? Do you think that schools I might do that? I honestly do. I honestly, yeah, I absolutely do think. Because I wouldn't have said that they would get to the point where unvaccinated people can sit outside literally in the rain and vaccinated people can go inside and eat in the restaurant. And I honestly wouldn't have said it would get to that point. But the fact that it has gotten to that point shows me just how far they are willing to go, just how manipulative and like how far they're willing to push this. I genuinely can see a time in the not so distant future where there is a classroom with vaccinated children and a classroom with unvaccinated children. I can absolutely see that happening. Yeah. If, this, is, this is not a loaded question because I have my opinions and I'm not going to share them now because my listeners are tired of hearing me express my opinion. What do you think might be going on? Why do you think they might be pushing a vaccine on people that whatever people might think of the jab, and I've got very strong opinions on it, but whatever they might think of it, it's obviously not necessary to do that. It's obviously not. Why do you think they're pushing it so hard? There's a few few things. I mean, there's a lot of conspiracy theories. There's a lot of places you could go with it, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole. I don't want to go too conspiracy theorist here. But, I mean, population control makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's one thing that does make a lot of sense to me. But another thing that makes a lot of sense is it's about pushing and seeing how far can they push people, how far can they control people about compliance, how far can they get people to comply, how willing are people to comply. And it's shocking to me, just in Ireland specifically, how compliant people have been with this. And it's about seeing how far can we push them, how far can we push them before people speak up and stand up for what's right. And the answer is you could push us very, very, very far because people haven't, you know, people are starting to speak up now, but they haven't spoken up up until this point. Do you know what I mean? Do you think there's still time? Is there still time then? Do you think there's time 
for something to be done or is it going to be is, is it going to be bleak for a time? I think we're headed in a very bad direction and I think things are going to get worse before they get better. I think they can get better, but I think things are going to get an awful, awful lot worse first. I think there's going to be we're, there's going to be a very bad time before things get better. And I, I don't want to sound negative and I don't want to be depressing, but I'm, I'm being honest. I, I, I can't see... I can't see how things are going to just suddenly be okay again. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. just, it doesn't make any it doesn't make any logical sense. I mean, even just restaurants. What's going to happen is they're going to lock us down again. They're going to lock us down again in October. And all these restaurants who have put up all these things, like when I I was in um, the opticians with my son, and I was just looking at the frame, the stuff they have up the the PPE stuff and the you know all the big um, glass plastic things they have to protect you from the COVID. And I was looking at how permanent the structures are. Do you know what I mean? They're they're solid permanent structures. They're not going to take these down. This, this is not going away. This is here forever. And I, I saw something online and it was interesting, actually. Somebody said, you think this is going to go away? Just think about the fact that before 9-11, we didn't used to take our shoes off at the airport. Yeah. And now that's a normal, common thing we do. This this is never going to go away. Forever, we're going to be hand sanitizing when we go into a shop. You know, that's the new normal. That's what it is. It's, it's things, things are going to have to get dramatically worse before they start to get better and like we think things are bad now they're going to get worse and then maybe they can start to get better hopefully I bet you're glad I bet I bet you and Justin are glad that you're homeschooling the youngsters eh? Yeah, yeah we are we absolutely are we are and, and we're very we're very lucky where we live you know we have space we have space for them to go outside space for them to play we're very very lucky in that we're very you know we really do appreciate the fact that we're able to homeschool them and we're able to, you know, just let them have a life as much as possible, you know, but we're, we're conscious of what they're missing out on, you know, and what, what all the children are missing out on. And it's just, it's, and, and actually with homeschooling as well, you know, normally I would have them in, in clubs and groups and things because when they're not in the classroom, they need to socialize with other children. Yeah. But those aren't happening now. There aren't any clubs and groups and things like that. Like my, my six-year-old had just started um, karate, but he had to stop because the coronavirus, you know, they weren't having any more classes. So um, it's, it's you know, you're conscious of, of, of what they're missing out on. But at the same time, we, we are lucky that we have homeschooled from the beginning and it's not something, you know, it wasn't a drastic change for them or anything. Like I feel very sorry for the parents who have, like I've gotten a lot of messages from parents, mothers, especially who've, said, you know, I want to take my children out of school, but I don't know how to go about it. And I'm, my children don't want to come out of school because they want to be with their friends, you know, and, and I feel very sorry for them because they're in a very difficult position because they want to get their children away from all this propaganda. They want, you know, to homeschool them, but it's, it's difficult. It's not, it's not an easy thing to start doing if you haven't done it from the beginning. But it is possible. And I do think people who are willing to try should, should try, you know, because it's, it's going to be very beneficial. No doubt. Folks, if you're, if you're listening to this back home, or here, it doesn't matter where, you can find Rebecca on Twitter. It's Rebecca Barrett. It's at Reb, R-E-B, Barrett, N-P for National Party. At Reb Barrett, N-P. Rebecca, thanks for coming on and, um, so and sharing your, your experiences with us um, across the last uh, 15 months. It's been fascinating. I hope you'll stay in touch and you'll consider coming back on again. Really enjoyed it. Absolutely, as difficult absolutely. as it is Thank to talk about so this. No, no, the pleasure is all mine. Regards to uh, your husband, Justin, and to your children as well. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you so much.
Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank Not at all. That was Rebecca Barrett there. Rebecca is a member of the National Party back home, stood for the party last year, former primary school teacher, homeschooling her children now and uh, sharing her thoughts on a pretty dark day for, for Ireland and for Irish history when the, the, the a law has come into force today that says that people attending, people going to restaurants, cafes, pubs, must be uh, jabbed or must prove that they've um, passed a recent COVID test and show their COVID pass in order to be admitted. It's dreadful stuff. Uh, thanks to Rebecca there. It's exactly, I think, uh, two, two and a half minutes to the top of the hour. And I think my Twitter account has been deleted. I think, suspended or deleted, I think. I've had a, a, a notification via email from Twitter but I think it's gone and it might be gone permanently. It's been suspended once or twice in the last 12 months. I think this might be it for the Twitter account. I always said that if it did get deleted, well, that would be it. It, um, it, it, it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be going to open up another one. But I think my Twitter account might be gone. Yeah, yeah. I can't see any notifications. I can't see anything. I can't look at my own profile. And I've had an email from them saying that basically it's permanently suspended. So there you are. No more Twitter for me. No more Twitter for me. What are you going to do? Right, here's that music from Corner Shop then. This is Brimful of Asha. I've got a fascinating guest coming up for you in about uh, about seven or eight minutes of time. You don't want to miss him. This is going to be very interesting too. It's uh, Monday's Richie Allen Radio Show, the 26th of July, 2021. Get Norman Cook and... Brimful of Asha. I'm trying to think off the top of my head what year that is. It's got to be 1998, is it? Is it 98? I am genuinely guessing, so I'm happy to be wrong. I'm often wrong. Yeah, the the the, the Twitter account for the programme has been deleted while I'm on air, which some of you, to your to your credit, find very amusing. I suppose. There, that might be a first. It might be a first. Apparently, it's been suspended for... For threatening, harassing, racist. No, no, they're not accusing me of that. They give you a list of things that might be. <laughs> they give you a, things, a list of things you might have done. That um, So I have no idea why. I have no idea. The Facebook account, of course, was deleted. I don't know. When was it? A couple of months ago? Three months ago? And there was no reason given then either. But I, I suspected at the time it was down to me sharing of my articles on richieallen.co.uk. So this is what I suggest we do tomorrow. Tomorrow, I will open on the website, I will publish a story, a nonsense story. I'll call it the comment section. And if you want to comment, and if you're desperate to say something, you can do it that way, or you can send a message through the website, through the contact thing. You know, the contact bit at the top of the page, you can send me a message that way. I don't know, it's up to you. So I can't read your comments now, can't see anything. Sadly, and I know there were a lot of comments when Rebecca was on air with me a short time ago. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'm not going to complain. And I'm not going to tell you that I'm being targeted. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to martyr myself. I'm not going to do that at all. And listen, can I just say this? I, I don't need to say this. But can I say this? Because one or two of you, God love you, you are a bit dim. One or two of you, of the many thousands, are a little bit dim. You just don't listen. Um, I've never had anything but good things to say about my very good friend Gareth Ike and his father David Ike. Never had anything but good things to say about them and continue to do so. They've got nothing to do with um, this uh, Shemarani woman. 
But um, I, I just made the point, I wouldn't want to be addressing crowds of people with the media watching while she's doing it. I'd rather do it somewhere where she wasn't. You understand? That's the point I was making. You have to understand it. You, all you have to do is listen because I've got a pretty decent command of English. Just have to listen, that's all. And then you'll hear exactly what it is I am saying and what I mean. Because I always say what I mean and I mean what I bloody well say. Do you understand? Right, okay. Shall we get Dan on? How interesting is Dan? Well, I think he's very interesting, to be honest. I'm going to read you a little bit from an article in the Mail on Sunday before we say hi to Dan. So let me read you from the Mail on Sunday. Now, a number of you did notice this and a number of you were taken with it. Let me read it before we say hi to Dan. Cash in people's pockets would be superseded by a new Britcoin digital currency in a plan being pushed by Chancellor Rishi Sunak. In what Treasury insiders say would be the biggest upheaval in the monetary system for centuries, the Bank of England would establish a direct digital equivalent to physical money and take control of it in the same way as sterling. Its supporters in the Treasury say that it would allow the bank to give the economy a boost in times of financial crisis by paying the Britcoins directly into people's bank accounts. It could also slash the cost and time it takes to make payments online and transfer money around the banking system. Bitcoin could also cut banking costs dramatically for small firms, but critics warn a digital version of the pound could lead to greater financial instability. There also fears the introduction of Bitcoin would lead to higher loan and mortgage rates as millions of people switched cash to central bank digital currency. A task force has been set up to examine the merits of Bitcoin and will report back to Sunak by the end of the year. Now, my guest this hour, he basically published a thread about this and more on Twitter yesterday. It is excellent. It makes very, very good reading. It's very challenging, some of the points he makes. And uh, it made quite a bit of sense to me. He spent 20 years or more in venture capital working in and around emerging technologies. He is an expert. Uh, he joked with me the other day that he uh, can't figure out yet whether he's retired or unemployed. He hasn't decided yet. He tweets under a pseudonym, and that's understandable because we do live in the era of cancel culture. And I uh, I will get around to somehow uh, getting uh, information. What, what I will do is I will put his Twitter details on my website later on now that I've been unceremoniously suspended from Twitter. Let's just welcome Dan to the programme. Hey Dan, lovely to meet you. Thanks for coming on. How are you? I'm well, Richie, and um, thanks for having me on. No, it's brilliant to have you on. Now, I've had people on this programme for many years. Um, e economists like Steve Keane and others have come on and we've talked about things like basic things like the cashless society and the dangers of that. Now, before we get into the far more important details of your thread than just cashless society, a lot of people reading your thread and it's been seen by many people they've said that the first thing that comes to mind is oh my god pretty soon there won't be any cash around and that's very bad for freedom very bad for democracy do you want to address that straight off the bat before we move on into deeper issues yeah so you were reading from the article that um that, that triggered my thinking around yeah. this, and they list a number of benefits of um digital currencies now that's all true all of that is possible. But actually, all of that is true on a decentralized cryptocurrency, something like Bitcoin or, or one of the alternatives. If that's what they wanted to do, they could do that now. They don't need to develop their own version. 
The reason they're developing their own version is because it gives them absolutely Orwellian level control over every aspect of our lives. So, I mean, just to just to explain briefly why a, a centralized cryptocurrency is such a complete horror show. Um, maybe I can walk you through one of a, one or two of the horrible things that you can actually do with it if you if you're a government. Absolutely do. And by the way, I've made a list of all the 28 points you made in your thread yesterday, which is brilliant. I recommend people go and read it. Dan, very quickly, what's your Twitter handle? It's KingBingo underscore. King Bingo underscore, folks. Yep. I can't retweet this at the moment because I've been temporarily or permanently booted off Twitter. King Bingo underscore. And Dan, just to put your mind at ease, it wasn't for racism or for homophobia or for anything <laughs> like that. I have no idea why they've suspended me. It might be yeah, because... Yeah, sorry, sorry to see about your account. I just looked at it and yeah, it's, it's a bit it's, mad. It's yeah, gone, it's gone. It? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, you reached out to me yesterday by DM and you, I was probably one of the last people you spoke to on it. I think so. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's probably right. But yeah, let me put your mind at ease and everybody else's it's not for anything nasty I don't know why it's happened and maybe we'll find out maybe we won't but yeah I've made a, a list of all these points so give us the, the absolute worst case scenario then with this technology yeah okay so, so why why a um, centrally issued government cryptocurrency is, is an absolute horror show so I'll, I'll start off gently they will be able to track every single purchase you make and every payment you receive because the middleman is gone there's no longer your bank account um, if they want to see what you're doing in the bank account at the moment, they've got to go and get a warrant. And then they've got to take that to the bank or any other banks that you have accounts with. And, and they've, got to, they've got to look at it individually. If the wallet is held directly with the central bank, they see everything. But, but that's not the worst of it. I mean, for a start, they better work out exactly what you owe in taxes and deduct it without having to ask you. So you won't need to do a tax assessment. Some people are going to think that's a bad thing, but but also it gives them a, a, an unprecedented level of control. They can just take it immediately. But it gets worse. Uh, let, let's say you get a speeding ticket. Again, they can just deduct it immediately from your account. Wow. Right? And all of that is before we start getting imaginative. A future government, and I don't think they would do this on day one, but a future government could decide that you're only allowed to spend £10 a week on red meat or yeah. alcohol or sugary foods. And they will cap your digital wallet from paying out any more towards those things. They could decide that you've spent too much on carbon and that the green agenda is so important that if you filled up your four by four this week or you took a plane somewhere, they're going to add a carbon levy and they're going to fine you for that. Um, and it goes further. They could decide that, that you, Richie, you're a very naughty boy. Because what you have done is committed wrong think on the internet. And they're going to punish you by giving you a higher tax rate. But but Greta over there, well, she's lovely and woke. So she's going to qualify for a lower tax rate. Right. So what it essentially gets you to is something not that different. Well, actually, it's the same thing as the Chinese um, social credit system. Yeah. Except it's linked directly to your money. And there's one more thing they can do. And this is the bit that horrifies me the most. Um they talked about they can use it to stimulate the economy by paying money directly into account. Um, they can do that with, like, with an open source currency. But one thing they can do with a, with a centralized currency is they can decide, OK, you're getting paid on Monday morning. All of the money that's paid into your account will cease to exist on midnight Sunday if you haven't spent it. So get out there and be a good little consumer. Go and buy a TV, go and buy a takeaway, spend, spend, spend. Because we will, we will make the money disappear. We will put a time limit on that money. 
So it, it gives them a horrifying level of control that they just don't have at the moment. And bail-ins. Yeah, exactly. They, they can help themselves because, you know, it's they, they control the wallet directly. Don't they? You'll remember this last year, Ed Conway, Sky News' economics editor, who owns the rights for The Times. Last year, he proposed a bail-in. He actually proposed it in the pages of The Times. I'm sure you read the article, uh, Dan. He proposed that it, that it would be done and done so quickly that people wouldn't have a chance to move their money. And this was to pay down the COVID bill. Imagine that. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there, there's precedent for that, isn't there? Because Malta did it uh, back Cyprus. in 2008. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the precedent is set. Um, we, we are clearly in extraordinary times, not, not because of a virus, but because of the government's reaction to it. Um, and if they can justify all of the things that they have justified over the, over the course of the last year, yeah, why not a bail-in? Dan is our guest uh, this hour. I'm really grateful that he came on too. Um, Dan has been in venture capital for years. He, he's, he's an expert. He understands finance inside out. And his thread is uh, King Bingo underscore. Look for it. It's pinned to the top. Read it. Uh, check it. Share it, by the way. Share it. Make it go even more viral. It's uh, Dan's take on what might be coming down the line. Now, th- these are the worst case scenarios. And from what I understand, I've got many of your bullet points here. They're not yet in a position to do that because of um because there isn't yet a national digital id system in place but but there's one yeah. we're seeing the emergence of one right yeah so so china is at that point china is ready to go they've developed the technology because they already had the national digital id system which was the social credit system all they needed to do at that point was build out their centralized digital currencies put the two together and, and you're, off, you're off to the races. And that's why a couple of weeks ago they banned Bitcoin, because they are ready to go on this. The UK is looking at this and they're thinking the same thing that I'm thinking, because I laid it out in the Fed. They're thinking that we've had one too many boom bust cycles. And we're not going to get out of this one because we, we've got a, we've got a hell of a crash coming when the economic effects of all this comes through. Um and it is highly unlikely we can get away with what we did in 2008 of just reflating it. So the old system is going away one way or another. So we're probably going to end up with a, uh, a, a new digital currency because the old one is going to cease to exist. And the only question at this point is, is it going to be an open source one based on Bitcoin or something like it? Or is it going to be centrally managed? Now, in order to centrally manage it, they need to develop out their tech, and that's what the article is talking about, but they also need to tie it to a digital ID system, and they don't have one at the moment. However, lucky for them, all you need to do is take your uh, vaccine passport, which is basically a digital ID system, and push out an update, and it turns into something that could support digital wallets as well. Do you think they want to do that? You're convinced of it? Um, I think their ideal scenario is that they could carry on with the current system um, and make it the next guy's problem. And that's what politicians have always done. So the reason why our financial system is so vulnerable and has a um, and has a sort of built in kill switch uh, is because it's run by politicians and politicians will always prioritize short term advantage over the long term survivability of the system. So um, Gordon Brown back in 2008 um, he wasn't looking to make uh, the system right. He was just looking to kick the can down the road so that it would be somebody else's problem. Now, ideally, what the guys at the moment want to do is they want to kick the can down the road as well. 
I think it's highly unlikely they're going to get away with it. Why do you say it's, that now? Because traditionally, I mean, we, we, we know you, you talk in your excellent thread about, you know, the, the printing of money. What, they've always done that. I mean, they bailed out the banks in 2008 when they should have bailed out people, maybe, but that's a philosophical argument for another day. But they seem to always have money because they just invented out of thin air. Why do you think they're going to stop doing that? Is it because, because well, they're, well, the, they're going to be the told? The traditional method is that when you have a recession, you just uh, lower interest rates. Yeah. And that increases the supply of credit, which is a, effectively the same thing as, as creating more money. Um, and then you, you go back up again. But the problem is every time you do that, you lower the, um, the long-term sustainable rate of interest rates. So, I mean, anybody who had a bank account in the 80s will recognize this. In the 80s, you could walk into any high street branch and you could get 8 or 9% on your money. Savings. You know, yeah. Yeah. Try getting eight or nine percent in a in a bank account these days. Can't get anything. Not a chance. I, I don't think you even get one hundredth of that. Now. No, you get nothing. No. Yeah. So interest rates are already hit zero. Um, and in two thousand eight, what they did was a little bit of money printing, and they got away with it. They managed to kick the can down the road for another short-term debt cycle. We're at the point now where the economic damage, which um, bizarrely was was self-inflicted, well. Maybe it's not so bizarre, but they self-inflicted this damage because possibly, and I don't know whether this is conspiracy or cock-up, I'm, I'm open to either. Good. They thought, look, the system is coming down anyway. Do we want to get blamed for it? Or do we want a convenient excuse for why things have come crashing down um, that we're not going to get the blame for? I'm not sure it was necessarily that, because otherwise they would have been more advanced with their planning around digital currencies and a national ID system. But I think they, they seized upon a potential crisis. They amplified it massively um, and they used it to push this agenda. And they're now playing catch up. Um, and, and the reason I think that is, is, I don't know if you remember, but very early on in the whole COVID thing, bizarrely, and, and we're talking within the first few days and weeks of the whole COVID thing kicking off. All of a sudden, the media was talking about a cashless society. And it was like... Very early weird. on. You're right. You're absolutely yeah, right. So I, I think they had that as, as a government priority on a shelf somewhere. And, and they were thinking, OK, we've got 10 years to bring this in. And then COVID happened and they thought, right, perfect. This is the opportunity. We're going to seize it um, and we're going to ram this through now. Um, and when they started to realise that COVID was perhaps not the threat... Um, but they thought it was. They thought, well, bugger, we need it to be. So let's just amplify it a bit um, and ram this agenda through. But now they're busy playing catch up because the economic damage that they've done with their lockdown, their lockdowns are so severe that even if they could have got one more short term debt cycle out of us before, which in itself was a bit of a push, I think it's really unlikely that they're going to do it now. The reason they're really unlikely to do it now is because they cannot let the stock market crash. So they're having to print vast amounts of money. And when you start printing money, um, it's, it's like kryptonite for the economy. Or, well, maybe that's a bad analogy because, you know, kryptonite kills Superman straight away. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's, it's more like... Or disables like, him anyway, yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's more like um, injecting a massive amount of stimulants directly into your heart. You know, you're going to run really fast for about 15 minutes and then you're going to keel over and die. Um, now, now, to put this in perspective, and, and, and people are always amazed when I tell them this number, 30% of all the money that exists was created in the last 15 months. Is that right? 
It is a staggering amount. And I don't think they're done yet. Um, if you look at the US, I mean, they're really leading the charge on this one. I mean, they are they are print to go to the max. You know, they're just about to ramp through, I think, another three trillion spending bill. And there's talk of a, of a similar sized bill coming down behind that. Um, you know, they are they are running this economy so ridiculously hot. And you didn't even mention what the European Central Bank is doing. And then you have the, yep. the money printed by the Bank of England. So when you said the crash is inevitable, and I do not have your expertise, but economics is something I used to do in mainstream media. I used to do reports, so I have a little bit of an understanding. When the, when the crash comes, what are going to be, in your opinion, what are going to be the early signs that it's going to go belly up? Are we talking about hyperinflation? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, hyperinflation has its own special definition, which is yeah. which is quite hard to get to. I mean, it, it, it's it's an absurd amount, but I mean, you're already starting to see price rises. Inflation. You are, you are. Uh, yeah. You know, what, one thing I would say to people is, you know, if if you happen to come across um, an old Tesco's or Sainsbury's receipt from a year ago, just compare it to your weekly shop now. Yeah. Or if you don't, save your next one, give it a year, and then compare the two. I've done and, it, and you're. Yeah, you'll start to see that the effect of inflation is nothing like what they say. So the official inflation rate is something like two or three percent. And that's climbing up and, and they're starting to, to make all the right noises about, oh, you know, this is a little bit high, um, but, um, you know, it's only going to be transitory and we, we're going to we're going to get it down and it's all going to be fine. The inflation rate is not three percent. It's only that because they rig it massively. So what they use is they use something called CPI, the Consumer Price Index. That inflation rate is good for you if your sole life ambition is to dwell in your mother's basement, order pizzas, and play video games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because all it is 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 consumption. If you're a real person, if you if you say you're a real, a real young person, what you want to buy is a house. The price of those have gone up massively. So, so Richie, I don't, I don't know when you left school, but I, I left school in the early nineties. Same as and, me. Yeah, to buy to buy a, a sort of modest family home back then, you know, um, you know, hundred hundred fifty, hundred seventy, something like that. Down um, south, started, down south, yeah. <laughs> but 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 yeah, but up here, yeah, up here, you could have gotten. When I came out of uni, in Manchester, you could have gotten a decent terrace. Now, a decent terrace, you could have got it for eighteen grand. Wow. Yeah, honest wow. to God, yeah. Yeah. Up Should here. Up here, yeah, yeah. But look, you're right. I mean, I think you're probably right. The average is probably 100, somewhere between 100 and 150. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely bang on. What are you talking, what are you looking at now? Half a million? Down down south? Um, well, for, mo- for a modest, early, uh, you know, entry-level family home, you know, you, you, you can do it for sort of a bit over 300. But 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 the, the striking thing is what's happened to starting wages in that time. So starting yeah. wages, back when I when I left school, um, it would have been, I don't know, an entry-level job, 16, 17 grand. These days, 19, 20, you know, it's, the, the, the wages have not kept up with um, the price of assets at all. But, and and what, if you're, what if you're older in life and the assets that you want to buy is um, retirement? You want to buy an annuity and you want to live off that. Well, the prices of those have absolutely soared as well. Bond prices, equity prices, anything that can pay you a dividend. So when they say inflation of two, three percent, it's only that because they exclude everything that you might actually want to buy. Yeah, they exclude exclude that which you want to buy. And what is the this might sound like a stupid question, but for people listening to this, this is new to them. What is the inevitable consequence 
of stagnating wages, wages not rising, but everything else going up, particularly, you mentioned there, something that you might want to buy for retirement and annuity. Leave that to one side for a moment. But your everyday essentials, what are the inevitable consequences of the everyday essentials skyrocketing in price while wages stagnate? Well, I mean, typically it's unrest. I mean, it's not something that we've seen in the West for a long time. Um, we've had loads of examples of this in the developing world yeah. over the last you know, 20 or 30 years. Um, and typically when your your day to day um, living expenses get over a certain percentage, I forget what the percentage is, but it's reasonably low, like 50 percent or something like that. Um, typically, that's when you start to see revolutions. So, I mean, the, 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 the striking thing for me is, is when I traveled around China a few years ago um, and, and I had those sort of faulty assumptions that lots of Westerners do because we were told by our media that the Tiananmen Square revolution was caused because they wanted democracy. That's not how they see it. If you speak to those guys, they, they, were, um, they were out on the streets because inflation had got too high. Uh, and they, you know, they, they couldn't um, they couldn't go play dice or, they or drink broke. beers anymore. They were broke. Yeah, they were broke. Wow. Uh, and, and you see this all the time. And we haven't had it in the West for such a long time that we've forgotten about it. It's, it's quite typical in this country to go into a bar or something and see they've um, stenciled or painted the prices onto the wall. We are not used to living in a high inflation society. But I think we're about to make that transition where you're going to go back to wipeable boards with all the prices on it because things are going to start to move and move and move. Dan is our guest. I, I can only imagine it's kicking off on Twitter. I know it is. We, we, we have a huge audience here and we get hundreds and hundreds of tweets during the programme. Um, I, I'm sorry that I can't read out some of the comments, but I'm sure there are many. Um, you'll see them yourself, Dan. Dan spent uh, 20 years in venture capital and uh, looking at emerging technologies amongst other things, right? If you want to find them on Twitter, please do. It's kingbingo underscore. That's right. It's not Bingo King. It's King Bingo. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. It's it's a really stupid name. Um, but I, I joined Twitter right back in the early days, and I thought, all right, what's this thing? You know, just just pick a random name out of thin air, yeah, and yeah. then <laughs> now I'm stuck with it. You should have kept your own name. None of us did. I didn't do that either way back when. But um, this is this is this this is obviously very important stuff, and I want to I want to put something to you. We yep. we've had crashes over the years you mentioned 2008 they were often in seven and eight year cycles when when you look at the same group of gangsters or banksters or the the one percent who always do incredibly well out of these crashes you have to be i don't mean you you don't you don't have to do anything you think for yourself but i have had to consider over the years that the crashes themselves were deliberately engineered what do you think um I don't know if they were necessarily deliberately engineered because um, uh, because it, it does create a bit of hassle for the politicians. It, it, it does cause a few bit of popularity problems. But by the same token, um, at no point has anybody tried to make any structural changes that will stop them from happening. And the essential structural problems is that we have a money system which is literally based on debt. Yeah, I mean, debt, yeah. That, that, that sounds bizarre. Prior to the 70s, um, money was based on gold and silver. These days, it is literally based on debt. Um, I, I, I won't go into the, the sort of the details of that now, but it really is as bonkers as, it's, as it sounds. Um, the effect of doing that is that you can very rapidly grow the monetary base. So take 
the latest crash, for example, when when um, I think it was in March of last year that, that the market really bottomed out. Um, it was immediately obvious to, you know, well, not just myself. I mean, a- anybody who's sort of familiar and fine, it was immediately, immediately obvious what you had to do. Basically, you had to become irresponsibly long. You had to pump as much money into the market as possible. And I remember ringing around all my friends and family and saying, the market conditions at the moment are absolutely amazing. Get your money in. And I could sort of hear them on the other end of the phone talking to each other saying, he's gone mad. And and I can understand why they were thinking about that, because actually, if if you're a sensible, sane person, the economy was was about to take an, an absolute tank. And, and what I perhaps didn't explain too well to my friends and family is that the the response by central bankers to every crash at this point is is so predictable. They were going to flood the system with money and that was going to cause the stock market to burst upwards. And what we actually saw over the last 15 months is that people who had their money in risk on assets. So that's things like um, derivatives uh, and, and stocks and other things like that um, made an enormous amount of money. At the same time, the people who work for a living and actually do something useful, their wealth relatively has declined. So every time this happens, it is an opportunity to transfer wealth from the masses to the few who have financial assets. Which is why I suspect that, and I continue to suspect it, that these things are engineered. And that ultimately, I mean, what I've learned, I've been in mainstream, I was in mainstream media for years, producing, presenting. Um, what, What I came to believe, and this is my opinion, is that in reality, Gordon Brown and Rishi Sunak, these guys are not really calling the shots. That we we believe they are, but they're taking directions from elsewhere, from from think tanks and and uh, you know these institutions, Institute of Economic Affairs, and some of these other other things, think tanks. That's what I believe, but that's just my opinion. And yeah, so I, I think that is almost certainly true. I, I yeah. don't think it's particularly blatant. It's particularly obvious, and you could no. probably strap um, Gordon Brown or Rishi Sunak to a lie detector machine, and they would tell you that's not true. Yeah, because I I think it's subtly done. I, I think um, what the powerful elites do is they get their claws into the people who give advice to them. Absolutely. Um, so glad you said that, Dan. It's so important that people listen to this and understand it. Um, because with, without some level of understanding of this, we'll never get away from the two-party or three-party system. We'll never understand that the House always wins unless we start to realise that. And And you get into that, to be fair, in your excellent thread. You know, you talk about you know, the you say, look, have the Davos elites won the day? Um, you mentioned Brave New World, a social credit system underpinning a government as it monitors and scores every purchase you make and scores your value to them. And what that means is that you've been thinking about this in great depth, in, in great detail, that you've been considering this, that somebody or something or some group of people want to change the world in this way to turn it into this dystopian Orwellian lunatic asylum. Like, like you've been thinking about this, you know? I've been thinking a lot about a number of different strands. Uh, and, and the three strands that I sort of talk about in my thread is the collapse of the long-term debt cycle, um, the rise of cryptocurrencies is another, and, and thirdly, the really weird response to COVID that the governments have had. I've been thinking about each of them in isolation. It's only really recently that I've sort of connected the three of them together succinctly. And that's why I put the thread out. And I think it really struck a chord. Um, How did you feel, Dan? When when you started to 
make those connections and you began to suspect, and I wouldn't dream of putting words in your mouth, but it suspects that you began to think that there was some sort of long-term strategy for, for us, for people. How does that make you feel? Because um, it's not really a great place to be, is it, to, to start to understand that there's something really wrong going on here? Well, I mean, I, I'd always been aware that there were um, the, the powerful sort of money men behind the scenes that want to get their agenda. Um, and I was very much aware that something like Davos, for example, is, you know, I, I think the phrase is where millionaires go to get lectured by billionaires on, on how to run yeah. the world. Yeah. Um, I was very much aware that that was always happening. Um, but I mean, during during the most part of uh, the, the current woes that we're in, I was I was probably questioning it as much as anybody else. You know, why are they doing this? Um, and and for me, the whole thing you know came together, and the light bulb moment was when I saw that the um, the government are now you know um, rushing headlong towards a, a, a digital cryptocurrency because suddenly that explains basically everything. I mean, mm-hmm. I've I've been racking my brain to try and find some aspect of this that does not fit into that paradigm, and I can't find it. It explains, for example, why. Um, the billionaires like the, the Bill Gates and the Jeff Bezos are um, getting divorced so they can sell their financial assets and they can buy real assets. So in the Bill, case of Bill Gates, of course, he's buying all that farmland. Land. It's a real asset. Yeah. You can't print away farmland. No. Um, no matter how hot you run the printer, you know, there's, there's only going to be a certain amount of farmland. Um, it explains why, for example, uh, the vaccine minister stood up in parliament just the other day and said, look, even people who've had the placebo will still get the vaccine. Oh, passed. my God. Did you see that? Yeah. Uh, and, and well, you know, clearly With a straight the agenda face. is the vaccine passport. It's not the actual vaccine. No. If it's not the vaccine, it's not the virus, is it? What they really want out of this is that national global ID system. Now that I saw, uh, I think the day before I saw the announcement about the digital currencies and it was like, OK, right, that's it. In order to have a centralized digital currency, you need the two. You need what they were talking about, which is the technology for the digital currency itself. But you also need that national uh, digital ID system. You get both of those. And what you can do is you can do what China have done in the last few days, which is to introduce a digital yuan. And at the very beginning of this, you described your worst case scenario. And I, I think your worst case scenario. Now, this is my opinion. It isn't Dan's necessarily. My opinion is that you got it to an absolute T. You nailed it. The things that you said they will be able to do, withhold money from you so that you can't put any more carbon into the atmosphere, you know, um, punish you for infractions in for maybe having the wrong opinion on Twitter. Yeah. I really do believe, and I have for some time, and, and I'm not a, you know, a crazy... Um, I'm not a guy who sits around paranoid, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not stockpiling cans of Campbell's soup in my basement or any of that. I'm not doing any of that. I'm a fairly rational, fairly reasonable human being who's fairly level headed. And, and I've seen this this happen. And I believe this is where somebody or something wants it to, wants it to go. Just, just as a matter of interest, have you ever read, I'm sure you've heard of it or you've read it, a brilliant book by John Perkins called Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Have you ever read that? No, I haven't actually. Sounds interesting. What's that about? Well, John worked for the World Bank in the 1970s and his job was fairly straightforward. His job was to buddy up with tin pot dictators in certain parts of the world, Central America, get them up to their eyes in debt that they could never pay back and then just rob the country blind of all of its assets. 
That's what they were doing then. And John, for years now, has given talks. Now, he did, I don't think John saw COVID coming or that COVID would be taken advantage of, but he did predict a scenario like what we're going into eventually. I mean, you're talking about Gates getting buying all that farmland. You know, all well, of those if, real if you assets. want a particularly fascinating book, I'd recommend The Sovereign Individual. Uh, and that was written by a couple of guys. I forget the second guy's name, but the first guy was um, Lord William Re- uh, William Rees-Mogg, so um, uh, Jacob's father. Um, he, he was a financier, and he wrote a book in 2000 that predicted um, the rise of Bitcoin, which is why I initially read it. He, they, they called it DigiCash, but they predicted that 10 years before Bitcoin actually happened. But the really fascinating thing is this, is they, is they realized that in a future where you could work on the internet and you could work from anywhere, why wouldn't you work from a low tax jurisdiction? You would just lift yourself up and go and live in, you know, wherever it was Makes low tax. Makes sense to me, yeah. So what they said is that within the next 20 years, governments will fake a pandemic in order to shut down international travel. Are you shitting me? Are you, excuse no, the bad language. They wrote, Honestly. they wrote that 20 years ago. They, there is a book where a guy says in 20, they're going to fake a pandemic. Honestly. Well, that they imply it's not quite as blunt as that, and it's a passing comment. But I mean, you you read it now, and you you just laser in on it. It's like wow, wow. So yeah, the so- the sovereign individual by William Rees Mogg. Wow, <laughs> you're you're blowing me away there. Yeah, so so to prevent people from saying, right, I have my own business, uh, it's all online, I'll just move to, I don't know, uh, Nicaragua maybe for a bit, maybe I'll move to Venezuela for a well, bit. I mean, or... t- t- take the city of London. I mean, yeah. 80% of the city of London, I mean, they're, they're all high earners, um, you know, uh, 80% of them have been working from home for the yeah. last year. Now, it's, it's suddenly going to occur to them, well, hang on, you know, why am I paying 55% tax in London? Now, if, if we didn't have the European Union, like if, if somebody like Greece, if, if Greece was smart about it, what they would do is they'd say, right, we're getting out of the European Union. Um, we are going to be a low tax environment um, and we're going to put special tax incentives in place for um, digital nomads, people who want to come and work there. I mean, you, you could have tens of thousands of city workers relocating and paying a more modest amount of tax in Greece, but still doing their job um for London in, in, in more or less the same time zone. I mean, you could that, have com- you could have countries competing for, for, for workers um, yep. just to get that little bit of tax revenue from them. But of course, this is, well, you could make an argument that the centralisation of power, in t- the concentration of power into such a tiny group of people was basically the plan. That was the European Union's aim all along, wasn't it? Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. Who could deny that now? And, and, and look, actually, what, what I should do is because, you know, I've, I've struck a pretty pessimistic note so far on your on your show. And I don't want your um, listeners to uh, to come away. with. Well, I was coming to that because can, yeah. can, I, can I just jump in? Dan is our guest, by the way. And uh, I, I can't recommend highly enough that you go to King Bingo underscore. That's King Bingo underscore on Twitter. Look at his thread. But I was coming. I wasn't coming to say, "Oh, it's really pessimistic, Dan," because you don't. You're, you're not really striking a pessimistic tone. There are warnings implicit in what you are saying. But you also say in the thread that if we became ungovernable, yeah, how do we do that? Um, but by not cooperating, by not taking this vax passport, by slowing them down. So, so my central thesis is this: Look, the monetary system that we're in at the moment. Um, it's an old man at this point. So um, 
to take take the US dollar for example. So the the non gold standard dollar started in 1971. The um, uh, the decimalized um, pound started in, in about the same era. You know the average fiat currency lasts for about 27 years. So both the the, the, the dollar in its current form and the pound in its current form, you know, they're, they're getting on in their days. And, and we're also at the point now where we're getting to the end of this long term debt cycle and the economy has so much debt in it um, and they are currently having to do so much printing. It's only a matter of, of when, not if, uh, the current monetary system collapses. Now, obviously, as I've described, if they get to do it the way they want to do it, they will introduce their centralised digital currency where they control everything. That is by far and away their their number one uh, preferred option. However, they're not ready to go with it yet. So if the system collapses before then, and they have to make a choice between the completely open, um, non-centralized, um, non-state run Bitcoin or something similar, or the Chinese system, they will choose the open system. So what I'm saying is the is the current system is on its last legs. That is going to go, uh, whether it's this year, next year, or maybe they get one more debt cycle out of it. But I don't think they will. I, th I think I think this current system is going away fairly soon. All we need to do is slow them down long enough that they can't implement their new system. And I don't know how long that is. That that might be slowing them down for 18 months or, or two years. And the way you do that is you just do not cooperate with any of this. You don't cooperate with the VAX passport. Um, you don't sign up for these digital wallets if they manage to bring it out in the meantime. And the system will, will purge itself because when the when the existing money system goes down, if they haven't got if they haven't got their ducks in a line, they are going to have to adopt either, either maybe a gold back system, but, but probably more likely a, a Bitcoin back system. Now, I'm terrified of Bitcoin, and I'll tell you why. I'm terrified of any digital currency because of where we came in when I said cashless society. I hate it because, you know, even if it's not, even if it's an open system as you described it, I still fear that it can be messed with and tampered with and, and uh, that there's still a lot to be said for being able to take your own money in your hand and for me to go to your house and buy that sofa off of you, Dan, that you don't want anymore. And they don't have any say in that. That's, I think that's still very important. Am I wrong? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I'd, I'd like to keep the current system going um, for, for a while yet. I don't think we're going to get that choice. Um, it, and, it, and it is partly is an efficiency thing. So, I mean, imagine going back to, to 1995 and, you know, having to explain to people that um, this this new thing, the Internet, was going to revolutionize industries. So, I mean, I've, I've got to make he, he was quite high up in the day in the music industry in the early 90s. Those guys were living it large um, by the end of the 90s and certainly in the early 2000s, because of the effect of the Internet, it completely demolished and then rebuilt that whole industry. And that's just one of many. I mean, retail, travel, you know, you pick whatever. The innovations that are happening in cryptocurrencies and digital currencies at the moment, um, they are a step change improvement. I understand a lot of people are suspicious about them. But if we go for the freedom version of them, um, actually, it could be an improvement. And it will be a bit like the internet. So it, it will give um, 
it, it will destroy some middlemen. It will empower others. It will give them new ways to um, control us, but it will also give us new freedoms. It's going to be a mixed bag. But we really are at a fork in the road at the moment. And the fork is the open decentralized system, which is up and running now, or the controlled the centralized system that they are working on. Now, if we go if we go left here and we go to the um, open system, it's going to be a lot of change. Um, but I'm but I'm actually quite positive about it. I, I, I think that in the mix we probably get more good than we get bad. You think so? Now you're you're yeah. you're obviously better versed on on this subject than than I am. I I still fear it. And you might laugh at this now. This is going to sound very swampy, but I'll say it anyway. I'd almost prefer to to just kind of to to regress back to some sort of barter system. Then Dan, yeah, I would. Yeah, I mean, actually, I mean, Bitcoin in its raw form is, is not actually that different from that. I mean, you, you can do that now. I mean, you can, uh, well, not it's not direct barter, it's, it's barter via sort of Bitcoin, but you can do it sort of person to person without anybody else getting involved in the transaction. Um, so look, I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I just think at this point, it, it, it is a step change improvement in the way finance is done. And it's a bit like, you know, if, if I sent you back in a time machine to 1995 to yeah, stop yeah, yeah, yeah. the internet, you, 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 you wouldn't be able to do it. It's, it's, it's a wave and it's coming. I get the impression, so I, Dan. I mean, you've described this, this system. And if, by the way, folks, if you've just tuned in and there's a possibility, you need to grab this from iTunes, Spotify, whatever, um, later on. We've had Dan on for the best part of this hour, 20 years in venture capital, an expert in finance and in currencies and in money. And we've been talking about the, the news that emerged yesterday that we suspected all along that the um, that the government is thinking about bringing in a new digital currency. They've dubbed it Britcoin in the newspapers. And Dan has written this excellent thread about how that could go, basically, you know. Uh, and if it, um, if it became, you know, completely uh, centralised as they would want it to be, well, your, your privacy basically goes out the window. There is nothing you could ever do that they wouldn't know. And it would also give them very easy access to your money, whether that be bail-ins, whether that be taxing you, whatever. It's horrible. It's dystopian, but it's possible. Danzi making his case for why we'd be better off with the more open, you know, system like Bitcoin that, that we have right now. This is really good stuff. I wanted to ask you before I run out of time, we've had... I know I'm being told that there's been lots and lots of tweets on this. I have had an email from somebody who, who's soliciting a tiny bit of financial advice from me, which you don't have to give, by the way, um, because you're not getting paid for it. But, but, but somebody has said to me, Richie, I have a small mortgage and I actually have more savings than I owe on my mortgage. I was very much, this, this emailer, it's a long email actually, um, was very interested in you talking about the fact you can't get anything for your savings now. So the, the gist of this email, it's from a guy called Tony, is what should he do with his savings? Should he throw it all at the mortgage? Okay, so, I mean, I definitely can't give financial advice no, of because, course you, you know, uh, they, they would come down on me like a ton of bricks if I did. But what I can tell you um, is that I have a mortgage um, and I could pay it off. But I, I don't want to pay it off because if I can borrow in fiat money, um, so paper money, if I can borrow in paper money for 2% a year and I can put that in something which generates significantly more, um, then I'm going to do that all day long. Now, what am I going to put it in? Um, 
at the moment I'm going to put it in basically higher risk stuff. So I'm going to have a certain amount in crypto. So probably, you know, 20%, something like that. And the other 80% I'm going to have in the market with a sort of weighting towards the more innovative um, stocks. Tech. Yeah, tech. Yeah, some some of those kind of things. Uh, And the reason I'm going to do that is because even though I think that all things being equal, the market should have a fall, my theory um, and by the way, this is not controversial in the slightest. I mean, everybody in finance thinks that this is going to happen, is that if the stock market starts to dip, um, they will pump money at it. Now, this is not to say the stock market won't dip. It's entirely possible um, that we get a huge you know, 40% dip that, that sits out for a month or something like that. And what that, what, will that, what that will do is it will scare away a lot of the retail investors. So I wouldn't want your, your friend who emailed in to, you know, to put money into the market, see a massive drop and then get scared off and sell at a low because yeah. that's the game they play. But what I think would happen with any drop um, is that they uh, then, then pump up the market once the retail market is sold off. Um, and again, the, uh, the finance guys they they do very well because they inject their money or and then they double down when when the stock prices go down. So so no, I mean I I, I would not be I would not be massively looking to um, get rid of my my paper money debt. I mean another option is is, is gold and silver as well um, if you're not comfortable with with that. Um, and and the other option is that you you know you go into other real assets. It could be land. It could be you know a, a second property that you rent out. I mean, you know, maybe you get a couple of mates in with that and you you, you get together and you get a flat. But um, but yeah, I, I I think that that risk assets are probably the way to go at the moment. Just be careful because eventually this market's going to run out of steam. You know, I think it's a saying in your in your profession, maybe maybe in America anyway. God isn't making any more land, is he? You can't go wrong with land. Exactly. Yeah. You can't yeah. go wrong with land. So how? Finally, before we finish up, and thanks for coming on, I'm going to give a shout again to the Twitter handle. It's King Bingo underscore. That's where you'll find Dan. It sounds, I mean, you apologised earlier on and said, oh, Richie, it's, it's, gone, it's a bit dark. I didn't think so. I think you're being frank, um, but upbeat. I think you're upbeat. Glass half full for you, Dan, for humanity. Um, look, honestly, my, my faith in humanity took a dive over the last 15 months. Um, the ability for people to be um, biddable and naive um, just was shocked me. Having said that, the pushback that I'm seeing in the last couple of months um, is warming my soul a bit. People are, are seeing through it. People are coming together. People are getting vocal. Um, and actually, I, I'm probably as much as an example for this. So, so for the for the first sort of year or so, I, I just kept to myself and, um, uh, you know, I thought, you know, this is madness, but I'm going to sit it out. But I'm at the point now is, you know, I am not going to stand by anymore. So I'm going to I'm going to come on your show. I'm going to do a few more shows. I'm going to get my message out. I'm going to start writing articles. I'm going to stand for, for Parliament Brilliant. as an independent candidate or maybe one of the other. You know, I am I am going to bloody stand in the way of this if I can do anything about it. So uh, and, and I think a lot of people, especially your listeners, are going to be in exactly that point. It's like you have pushed us too bloody far and we are going to become ungovernable now we are going to make things difficult for you um and and it's the rise of that sentiment and that pushback uh, which is which is giving me some hope and it was an absolute pleasure having you on thanks for doing it by the way i really appreciate it we didn't know each other at all we followed each other on twitter and that was about it really and uh, i'm glad you came on really good thread very interesting uh, really challenging some of it 
um, worrying, but but you know there is a solution. I agree with you. Non-violent civil disobedience on a big scale is going to push these people back. It's um, King Bingo underscore on Twitter. Do me a favour. Don't be a stranger, Dan. Absolutely. Um, sorry to have lost you there, but, you know, um, I'm going to start listening to your show. Um, you know, I, I, I listened to it. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a follower and we're going to stay in touch. Brilliant, Dan. Thanks so much for your time today. That was Dan, who spent 20 years in venture capital in the world of finance. And he's um, uploaded a thread to Twitter in the last 24 hours. It's really well put together and interesting. It's based on that article in the Times about the central bank digital currency that uh, Rishi Sunak wants to, well, allegedly Rishi, Rishi Sunak wants to introduce and to replace the current monetary system with and all that that would entail. Dan explained, and I think he's bang on, what would happen in such a scenario in a central bank digital currency system, we would be basically, it's game set and match for the, for the agenda, isn't it? You, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't go anywhere without them knowing it. But also in the future, when they're running climate lockdowns and stuff, they could penalise you and punish you for things, you know, uh, make it that you can't buy certain types of food. I think he mentioned the red meat thing earlier on. Very interesting stuff, this. It really is. Worrying, but but very interesting, I think. Thanks to Dan for that. If you're late to the programme, I won't be making much of this now. I will put something on my website, obviously, because I'll need to tell people uh, that they can't find me on Twitter anymore. But the programme seems to have been permanently kicked off of Twitter, following following on from my Facebook ban from, from some time ago. It all began four years ago now when YouTube deleted me. Yeah, I remember YouTube deleted me. That was funny at the time, actually. Because I was, I wasn't thin-skinned, I wasn't, but I was really outraged at the time when YouTube banned me. I couldn't believe it because I did my job. I interviewed Wolfgang Halbig, the former school safety inspector and the former Florida State Trooper. And I brought Wolfgang on because he was saying that he believed that the Sandy Hook shooting was a hoax. And I brought him on because I believed that he believed what he was saying. And he was making some interesting points. I brought him on. In fact, I'd done the very first interview with, with, with Wolfgang back in my TPV days in London with David, with David Icke. I was lucky enough to get the exclusive with Wolfgang. Brought him on and we had a chat and we stayed in touch. And I brought him on and, you know, the live show. And of course, the live show used to go on YouTube back then. And we chatted, but I really gave him a bit of a chasing. And he was good. You know, he understood Wolfgang. I went after him and I played some audio clips of of one of the fathers of one of the children and we did all that. I did my job properly. And I remember uploading the programme and the following morning I got up and the YouTube channel was no longer there and I was outraged because there were there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews on there. And I think the channel at that stage had grown to around about a hundred thousand subscribers. And it had more than 20 million views. Now, that's not... I don't say that because, hey, that's great, isn't it? 20 No, no. But a lot of time had been put into it. And my mate Simon, Simon Stewart, lovely bloke in Birmingham. Lovely fellow, Simon. Must reach out to Simon. It's been a while since we spoke. But Simon did a fantastic job on making those videos out of those interviews. And I was absolutely apoplectic that they could do it, that they could just delete the channel for no reason. And that I couldn't reach out to anybody specifically. 
and speak to any person. This is the way they've got it all set up. It's the same with Twitter, same with Facebook. You don't get to speak to anybody. You don't get, not, not that I care. I don't need to be on Twitter. I, I have better things to do than be tweeting. Where, where Twitter has been useful for me is in reading your comments as they come in during the uh, live programmes. And occasionally, I've been able to reach out to a potential guest who, who maybe doesn't have a website, maybe, or something like that. But no, I don't care about being banned. A lot of people have been banned from Twitter. A lot of people with very, very, very big profiles. Behemoth profiles. Spiro's been booted off. The Spiro had tens and tens of thousands of followers on there. I know he's he, he's back in there with a, with a, with a newer account, but um, it's it's just the way of it now, and it's obviously only been a matter of time. It was only going to be a matter of time before my account was eventually closed down. I can't imagine why. I did swear at somebody on Saturday. But that's all I did. I don't think it's about that. They they haven't told me exactly what it is. It's more than likely sharing articles from the website. Articles about COVID and articles about um, vaccines and vaccine passports. Probably. I'm making an assumption there, but they haven't told me. This is the thing. We've just permanently suspended your account. Why? And it says, oh, for... They give you a list of things it might be. <laughs> Harassment. Well, I've never harassed anybody. Ever. Racial abuse. Well, obviously, I've not racially abused anybody. Uh, homophobia. Well, obviously not. So I've no idea. And like I said, I don't give a shite. I'm only saying it because it's happened. And it happened during the programme, which is kind of funny. Thank you so much to my guests, Rebecca Barrett. Thank you. Uh, brilliant to have Rebecca on the programme from Dublin. Thank you as well to Dan for his uh, expertise and sharing his thoughts on, on, the, on the announcement. Of a of a potential central bank digital currency, which we've known you and I that they've planned to introduce for many, many, many years. Thanks to Dan. I'm back with you tomorrow. Among my guests, James Perloff. I love James, the author and broadcaster, live from New York City tomorrow. Leaving you with Gabrielle, closing out today's program. Thanks for spending a couple of hours with me, the BBG. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Until mañana, hasta pronto.